0: I thought maybe we'd just stand up and just practice a couple of the exercises that are in the end of the book. You know, Swami talks about, for increasing magnetism, um, just the the simple exercise of chanting Aum and creating a, an Aum vibration all around you, and I think it's really worth just thinking about that for a moment. What you're working with here is... <coughs> If we could see ourselves, we would see that as soon as you extend your arms out, that there's this great field of energy that goes in all directions. And it, if you consciously use that, like we do in yoga postures, just feeling as you move that you're, you're, I mean, we're kind of close together, but that your energy goes as far as you can imagine it going. And then inwardly mentally chanting, "Om." om you're becoming like a wave in this great ocean of OM, and that the smallness of yourself has been enfolded into the great infinity. There's a great deal of power in it. Don't ever underestimate something as simple as this. It can do a great deal to center and strengthen you. Before you have a difficult meeting or a personal encounter, center yourself in the Aum this way. The other one, which is more for protection, was the Om Tat Sat, just as simple as this. Om Tat Sat, Om Tat Sat. That's the equivalent of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. (laughs) It's Om, the, Om is the Divine Mother, Um, Tat is the Christ Consciousness within the Spirit, and Sat is the infinite beyond creation. So you're saying God beyond creation, God within creation, God within me. Om Tat Sat. Oh, and again, be very conscious of the fact that you're creating a vibration and an aura around you. Om tat sat. All right, and then you may sit down. The last one is just the, the mantra. Robert, can you remember the melody for the Om Ringling? I was trying to remember. Hi, Om namaha. Om ring ring Kling, Krishna. well then then, we won't try it tonight but anyway it's pronounced Om Hring Kling Krishnaya Namaha the next time say it with me Om Hring Kling Krishnaya Namaha now Dharma you probably can pronounce it more perfectly than I am I respectable with it? respectable (laughs) (laughs) Hring Kling it's a a, what they call it the sound of it that ringing sort of sound is part of the way you're supposed to say it Om Hring Kling Krishnaya Namaha 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 These are very... That one is a mantra for overcoming obstacles which a lot of us have used on many, many occasions when you're faced with something that seems really difficult to you the very sound of that mantra will help dissolve the obstacle. When Swami wrote the melody, he wrote this melody that sounds like Om Ring Ring Krishna Namaha Om Ring Kling Krishna Namaha something like that. It's very light. Normally, it was very surprising to me that the melody is so light because whenever I've recited it, I've always done it more like Om Ring Kling Krishna Namaha whenever we've done it in groups, which we have for long periods of time. When we were trying to mantra away a lawsuit that was filed against us, we did it a great deal over and over again. But it's very powerful. So don't... Um, very often, it has, it has a twofold effect on us. All of these do. One is, um, it's not so much a question of how successful we are at overcoming our delusions. It's a question of how strongly we resist. And it's also a question of how, uh, uh, whether or not when faced with difficult circumstances, if we instinctively turn toward the divine to solve them, or whether we try to just continually use our ego power. That's a certain amount of what this chapter is about. So the mere attempt to solve your difficulties by increasing your attunement in and of itself draws the grace of God. And also, by just reinforcing in our minds that the the solution to our problems is to become more in tune with divine power, it also um, cuts away the root of whatever difficulty we're having. Because you can't uh, simultaneously believe both things. You can't simultaneously think that I am an ego alone in the world taking care of myself, and I'm a child of God. And so, by just focusing on the spirit, even if what you're doing might not seem to you, um, exactly at the beginning as if it has the same power as your difficulty um, you'll you'll be reorienting your consciousness and the Om Ring Kling mantra is especially helpful because because it's a powerful mantra and also because a lot of times what demagnetizes us is worry and fear and anxiety and worry and fear and anxiety is not a physical object it's just uh, Uh, it's a state of mind that we get ourselves into and if we substitute the worry, the fear and the anxiety for the repetition of a mantra two things happen one is you activate the power of the mantra and two you replace uh, with the mantra all the other stuff which was cluttering up your head so I've I've sort of I'm never quite sure which is really the more powerful force but it's definitely true that these things are extremely helpful Next time you find yourself facing something you just don't know how to deal with, just om ring, cling it. <laughs> and uh, I remember once we were, when we learned that, we were on a uh, <clears throat> one of the absurd exercises we've done through the years. We were all in Reno, Nevada. Swami Kriyananda was giving public lectures, and we were publicizing the public lectures. We were driving around in pickup trucks, dressed in Indian clothes, actually, literally, doing a kirtan on the sidewalk in front of the Kmart. This is like 1972, something like that. Yeah. We just, uh, I think during those years, a number of things were ha- was happening. Um, part of it was that Swamiji was trying to get us to be proud of what we were doing and not be embarrassed by it. He was trying to break the thought form that everybody else was right and we were wrong, and really because we were doing something unusual, that we had to somehow, you know, hide it a little bit in the closet. I know Yogananda. There's one story about Yogananda having the nuns all dressed up in their saris, stand by the side of the road and eat big slices of watermelon without any forks. You know, just <laughs> I mean, it, uh, it doesn't seem like such a difficult test, but as, as for them, it was. People were more formal in those days, but there's another quality of just. Um, is it coming through the main speaker? Is it, just, we, oh, is it bleeding from somewhere else? From outside. Okay. Our our sound technician deserted us for the moment, so we're just stuck.
1: Uh,
0: it stopped. Um, He was also trying to get us to become excited about what we had to offer and just uh, use our energy to try to communicate with the world that we had something real to offer and we didn't have a very sophisticated method so anyway there we were dressed in Indian clothes um, in Reno (laughs) and even where Swami was speaking was in a hotel and all hotels in Reno had casinos in the lobby so I remember all of us in our Indian clothes and Swami in his orange robes with his long hair this was sort of more the hippie era this was The time when it it was odd, but not that odd. (laughs) Walking through this casino back into this room to give this. We did a lot of om, rin, Krishna krishnaya, namaha. That's the end point. I remember being with Haridas in a truck and just saying that over and over again because we did feel there were a lot of obstacles to our success. (laughs) Not the least of which was ourselves, I think, at that point. But it was a a successful program. Reno is a very... um, People who end up in Nevada sometimes are offbeat, and therefore more open to unconventional things. So, yes?
1: Did to say not to use the only clean mantra for trivial things, just use it for important things, or is that not correct? Maybe somebody else said
0: that, you know? Well, trivial is in the eye of the beholder.
1: Yeah, but I mean every time you're trying to spread a needle or...
0: I would think that that would be common sense. No, I think that would be common sense, that it has a lot of power. But that, that relates more to Swami's whole section on prayer, in essence, which is what is it that you pray for? Um, I guess, I think you should use it when there's a reason to use it. But I, I, yes, I would say that that's probably true. I've never actually heard him say it, but common sense I, I, would I say that. Say it, well, if you, if you use something tr- in a trivial sense, then it doesn't have power when you really need it. So that would be the logic of it, whether it's, you know, dogma or not. If, if every time some little tiny thing comes, you use it like that, it, it, unless you have that much power and concentration. But if you have that much power and concentration, why don't you just concentrate and thread the needle? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it, 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 the, the nature of it is such as when you're calling. It's a, way of, it's a way of activating what Swami talks about in this chapter, which is this balance point between grace and self-effort, which is exactly what what he's talking about, this whole section that we're dealing with here. I love to think of the audience for which Swami wrote this book because he originally wrote it as a contract with Time Warner Books. And it was a, a very um, I won't say that they well they were pretty worldly. I mean they were they were not spiritual people. They never they never liked this book. Well I mean they wanted they wanted these kinds of books, so they weren't completely without thought. But it was just an odd context and uh, The people were open for a while, and that's why they wanted him to do it, but I think he just went... They had asked for a book on meditation, remember I told you this in the first class, then they changed the title to Superconsciousness without knowing what they were doing. Some marketing person thought it was better, so he wrote a book on Superconsciousness, which was just so much more than they'd asked for, and they never could quite figure out how to uh, publish it. Those of you who have the paperback, the Time Warner one, it's sort of like it's minimal, there's no index. I mean, they're sort of like they, they fulfilled their end of the bargain, but they could see they didn't have what they wanted. They wanted a popular book, and they just weren't going to get it. They thought somehow that Swami could be a popular teacher. But I don't, I don't know if he'll ever be popular until after he's dead. Because it, 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 a man teaching like he does is just by definition ahead of his time. We often joke about that. If we were in tune with our times, there would be something wrong with us, with all due respect to the times. But You know, look at it. Who would want to be in tune with it? And we've got to be somehow out of step with it and laying the groundwork for something else. And I think that's just what's happening here. But this book is an amazing book for people who are serious. There's just so much in it. Okay, did we have any questions or comments from anything left over before we go forward? (coughs) Yes, (laughs) Dee. I'm not sure what you're talking about, Dee. Well I remember you saying that the avatar. Is there a difference or what is the difference? If if I don't have I, I never said that intentionally. If I used those words I was being colorful. I call
1: gases.
0: Yeah, I don't think so. I think I've I did comment that Swamiji often starts his discussion with the discussion of the galactic gases. That's the way I would normally use that phrase meaning that even to just describe some little mundane event, Swami's vision is such that he always starts from the infinite and then works his way down to where we are. So maybe in that context, it came together. But no, there's no difference. I mean, no difference. I'm sure somebody could make up differences with the English language. Part of the problem is, you see, these are not exact words in English. Yeah. When, when Master translates... Some concepts into English is translating exact concepts from Sanskrit that have no exact equivalent, like lifetrons and things like that that he speaks of. That just I mean, those are just made up words. I mean, galactic, is, galactic gases is sort of a made up word too. I mean, not technically, but still, it's it's trying to just say things that the English language isn't adept at saying. That's why we're absorbing words like guru and karma and chakras. Though I don't know if they're in the American dictionaries yet, but they will be soon. I've now subscribed to this thing which I'm sure many of you have heard of too, this AWOD, this a word a day, it was written up in uh, Reader's Digest, and this some individual person somewhere has a fascination for words, and every day you get an interesting word on your email system. It's a free service that he offers, it sends it out to 500,000 people in 210 company, countries. It's free. This is the best of the internet. Now the purpose I was saying, oh, in the Reader's Digest it said, that, uh, that the English language has two million words in it, and they the statistic they put there, as opposed to the French language, for example, which has sixty thousand I mean think of the difference that 's what it says i mean I find it hard to believe, but that 's what it said must it could it have said six hundred thousand I think it said sixty thousand but it said, it said that in france there's a, a a a governing board which determines where the words are allowed in, whereas in English. We're just very egalitarian about it. We like it, we add it. Pardon me?
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. But we just take in any word that seems useful to us. And many words, um, we don't even think of them. Petite, ennui, um, guru, karma, jungle, pajama. These are all words imported from other, adios, manana, <laughs> those are not quite English. We know they're still Spanish, but barely. You know, We just sort of take them all in and as a result, Swamiji, who's a linguist, re- linguist, remarks that you can be so exact in English. I remember when David and I went to Italy for the first time in the 1982, and we'd never heard Italian spoken all the time as we were hearing it. And finally, after a while, we said to Swami, they don't seem to have very many words, because really, they kept repeating the same words really often whenever they wanted to be enthusiastic or, or, or compliment something. And Swami just simply said, no, they don't have as so many words, they don't have as many choices. It's bella, bellissima. They actually do say, mamma mia. <laughs> David is fond of talking about when we were in Venice, this little, this is all off the subject. There was this little two-year-old child. This, we were at midnight in Venice on the bus system, which is actually a boat system, waiting, waiting to catch a boat. And there was this two Italian women and they had one of their little ch- children with them. And the, the two women were, chat, 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 talk, 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 like this. And the boy... Was totally intent on getting to this bag that his mother had and getting his mother's attention so she would, you know, open the bag and let him into it. And when he, when she finally opened it, it was full of candy. And just, you know, out of nowhere he says in his little two year old voice, Mamma Mia! <laughs> it was, you know, to us it was like, oh, you, you trained him. You must have paid him to say it. That was just his response. <laughs> and then he reached in and pulled out a big chocolate, which had been his goal. <laughs> okay. Um, in this, Any other questions? In this chapter, Swamiji, the first chapter, Swamiji just talks about the um, the importance of understanding the difference between spiritual achievement and material achievement. It's a very... Uh, it's a very fundamental thing to understand. It only makes reference to this woman, and I remember I knew her also, who just somehow, especially nowadays, because we're we're coming into a very interesting period in the spiritual evolution of the planet, where the two sides of reality, the spiritual and the material, are, are reintegrating. We've come out of the period known as Kali Yuga, in which the vibrations of the planet were essentially so dense that it was, it was impossible to integrate a normal life in this world with a spiritual life. And the characteristics of Kali Yuga are that there's a great dichotomy. And you think of it primarily in the image of the uh, cloistered monastics, <clears throat> the story of St. Francis and St. Clair. Uh, Claire really was inspired by Francis and really wanted to join um, his work. And she had to sneak away in the middle of the night And she met Francis in the woods and he took her long hair. They still have her hair in a little glass thing there. He cut off her long hair and um, then gave her the nun's habit and then hid her in this uh, nearby convent. There was no Franciscan uh, order for women at that point so he gave her to this other convent. Her brothers found out and were infuriated and came and tried to get her back but the fact that her hair had already been cut you know, she was, she, was, she was no longer a beautiful marriageable woman because her hair was cut, she was now a nun and her sister snuck out afterwards, Agnes, and the brother came and tried to get Agnes and Agnes clung to the altar rail and her brother tried physically to take her away but she held on and she became, the miracle was that she became so heavy, her, her brother couldn't lift her, you know, it's, but it was just like this huge fight. Um, of course, these were women who had less freedom, but there was still this huge fight, and even Francis himself had to be so extreme, you know, it's standing in the courtyard of Assisi, in the, in the square of Assisi, and stripping off all his clothes and returning them to his father and declaring that he was free forever from the family obligations and he was living only for God. You have to remember, it's, the whole story of Francis is so marvelous because he never left town he had been the son of one of the richest men in town. He'd been the privileged son of this very small town, the one who was the master of the feast, as they say, generous and fun-loving. And then he completely turned around and dressed in sackcloth and barefoot and, and begged for his food from the same people. He would just come back into the same little town every day and knock on the same doors. It was a very um, extraordinarily courageous and shocking and dramatic. Because that was the time that they lived in, as Swami said once. Also, they were all so basically physically uncomfortable that you had to go a lot farther to go to Tapasya. You know, it wasn't like, our, you know, we're so comfortable in our homes, just to turn off the heat is like a big shift. But there he had to go barefoot in the snow to make an impression on the on the basic difficulty of the time. But more profoundly than that, there was this <clears throat> The, the the basic level of consciousness was such that you, you couldn't be both spiritual and practical and material in the same way, at the same time. So you had to separate them out. But, but when you think of it logically, there's no real difference. There's no point at which life ceases to be spiritual. It's all an extension of divine energy. Where do you draw the line that this is spiritual and this isn't? Yes, certain things are more God-reminding. There's no question about that. But what's happening now in our age is that the, the way of life is integrating, and the monastic, the formal monastic life is is waning, dramatically waning. One of the reasons we're in this church, although the Catholics will never admit it, is that they don't have enough priests. If they had enough priests to run all their parishes, they'd just run them and let, it, you know, let this little cycle pass. They have a very long view of things. But they don't have enough religious orders and ordained priests to run the perishes anymore because it's just a diminishing way of life. Uh-huh. So in that climate there's this great embracing of material materiality and material success is not being different than spirituality. But like many corrections, that correction goes too far also. And there gets to be this thought that If you're spiritual, you're also going to be able to do all these things materially, and you're supposed to be able to manifest money and manifest health and all sorts of things like that, which there used to be when those teachings were sort of more in the Ascendant. I used to get refugees, I would call them, refugees from the New Age, people would come to me. Because very often the difficulty with that whole thought form is that, number one, it doesn't take into account what we were talking about last week and also this week, which is the power of karma, and the force of the vrittis in your spine, and it doesn't take into serious enough account the techniques that are required to really overcome those vortices of energy, which will always suck you away, no matter how hard you try. Some of the techniques are too superficial. And secondly, too many of those te- don't, techniques don't take into account God's grace and God's will. And there's, there's too much of a... Um, I am God, instead of God is me. You know, too much of, a, of a, a taking credit to the ego. And so the refugees would come to me, as I would call them, with, with feeling very much like spiritual failures because, for example, their finances, they weren't as rich as they wanted to be. Or perhaps they had persistent health problems they couldn't overcome, or the relationships weren't working out in the way that they'd hoped. And, and yet they were, had been told over and over, I can manifest anything I want. Well, maybe, if it's your karma and if it's God's will. And so Swami wants to make it very clear that, yes, it's true that if you're inwardly in tune, you can um, also affect the external world, but what you manifest outwardly is not necessarily the measure of your inner reality. And he sort of, in the beginning of this chapter, sort of walks that fine line between those two realities. Yes, yes. Your spirituality has to prove itself in the cold light of day, but no mere external achievement does not necessarily indicate spiritual achievement. And the lack of external achievement does not necessarily indicate spiritual lack. What What is spiritual is consciousness. It's the freedom and it's the joy, it's the kindness. There are characteristic fruits of the spiritual life. And they may also be a certain effectiveness in this world. And this is what Swami actually talks about is, you know, how to manifest energy, how to develop magnetism, how to really use what we have spiritually in a dynamic and effective way, but not to concentrate on that as if that were actually spiritual. It's a very important difference. And one of the things that makes Ananda what it is, it's not that we're not interested in being effective externally, but we're primarily interested in developing right consciousness, And even whatever we're able to do externally needs to be an extension of that right consciousness. And if in the effort to be effective in the world, we lose our way, so often over the years, people have come and tried to help sort of get us um, going. (laughs) Now, after all these years, we've gotten going a little bit more. But in the early years, there was a great desire to fix Ananda. And uh, But always they wanted to fix it by taking away what was really ultimately our strength, which was an appreciation of the inner reality first. And that's where Swami says here, just concentrate on your attunement with God. And don't really worry much about anything else. He says, don't even worry about your own vrittis, your own karma. If you really start thinking too much about any of that, another important reality is to remember that The essence of the spiritual path is self-forgetfulness. I know I've written this up here before, but it's important. Oftentimes in our very um, anxiety to get better, we become so self-preoccupied that we're not spiritual at all. I remember once in the very early years when I was at Ananda Village my first year, and I was working, running the retreat kitchen. What is the meditation retreat? And there was about 30 residents at that time, and we took all our meals. Nobody had a kitchen. All Everybody's meals were taken there. And Thursday was a fast day, so six days a week, plus guests. And more or less, I had the job single-handed. I had one assistant who was not particularly competent. And on the seventh day of rest, I would take the truck into town and um, buy groceries, buy provisions, really, you know, 50-pound sacks. I was younger and stronger at that point. But... Uh, I worked so hard and had so much fun cooking three meals a day, six days a week, that there was simply no place, there was just no time to be able to think whether I was enjoying myself or not. It was just the doing of it. And I I quite literally remember somebody coming up to me and saying, well, how are you? And the word you was spoken with this sort of like over-solicitous concern, and how are you, like that. And, And that... That force of having all that energy directed right at me actually caused me to be startled like that. Because I just had been concentrating on the flow. There was no self involved in it. It was a a, a natural discovery of the benefit of Karma Yoga, and what we talked about last week is the energy that comes from willingness. Because I was having so much fun, and I so just loved what I was doing. That I had all the energy in the world for it and not the slightest bit concerned about anything except just the doing of it. And then you automatically get into that flow of self-forgetfulness and that flow of energy as we were talking about last week just gradually overcomes all the vrittis. You don't have to think about them. And Swamiji emphasizes in here that, you know, the psychological emphasis on trying to sort of untie some of those un, 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 uh, loosen up some of those vrittis of confusion is beneficial, as he puts it, only so long as you're dealing with the biggest ones who are really in your way, um, implying that after that, and, and what he says, there's billions of them, we have billions of kinks. He, 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 he's very strong about that, just forget about your kinks, unless there's so much in your way that you can't go forward. And then you have to stop and sort of try to understand why am I stymied here? But after that, just get into the flow of energy, and the flow of energy will free you faster than any preoccupation with it. It's a very difficult point because it's not the um, style of our age to think like that. But one of the secrets and reasons why it's true is because of the concept of positive magnetism and positive energy, which we talk about in the next chapter when we talk about magnetism, which is that. As long as you have positive magnetism, you attract more energy to yourself. And As we were talking last week, as long as you have more energy, then you can go forward and find new solutions. If you run out of energy, then you run out of creativity, you run out of solutions, you run out of attunement, everything begins to shrink. And one of the keys to attracting energy is to have a positive magnetism. And one of the things that gives us positive magnetism is a positive attitude, positive expectation, positive self-image. And if we spend too much time just thinking about all the ways in which we're limited then the whole vibration that flows around us is one of limitation. It's exactly contrary to what many people are suggesting that we do. That's why self-forgetfulness it's not even to become self, become perfect or overcome your difficulties. I remember a woman Pardon me? I, oh, yeah. Well, it's not—it's not so much about concentrating on what's wrong with us. It's just concentrating on the flow of energy that is—that is us, and that flow of energy is always—is always fine because it's divine energy coming through us. So it's only when we stop and sort of wonder, "What about me? What about me?" I mean, you don't have a problem until you focus on it. it's a very very important thing to realize there's no reality to our suffering if we're not suffering because it's all inside of us I mean people can be in horrific circumstances and not consider themselves to be suffering because they don't they don't cognize it as suffering earlier in this class I talked about Swami going to the dentist and having his teeth drilled without Novocaine which would be um, really being put in hell as far as I was concerned he, he just concentrates off the pain and he's not suffering I mean even something as you would think as objectively true as physical suffering if you have the power of the mind to move away from it people have enormously different tolerances for um, pain based on their sensitivities and, and, and their habits and what they're used to thinking about in the same way we think we have all these difficulties but we only have them as long as we sit there and have them do you see what I mean? And that's why self-forgetfulness, and I don't mean self-forgetfulness in the sense of uh, going to sleep. I mean just going beyond it. Why should I stop and think about whether I'm worthy of doing this or not, or whether I'm adequate to do it or not? Let I me mean just do it. Do it the best I can. I was one of the earliest aphorisms that I learned on the spiritual path. Don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. Now, I was 18 years old. I thought, what else is there to think about? It was just such a novel thought to me, to not always be calculating my own position in circumstances. I mean, it's still a habit that I and many people have, to just consider where I fit in, whether people like me, whether they don't like me, whether I'm doing a good job, whether I can or can't do it, you know, all the things that you think about, but if you're not thinking about them, they don't exist. I love creative writing, I've grown to love writing. Because I become, when I'm really on, entirely self-forgetful. That's why a lot of people love creative work. Because you just forget, you just are doing what you're doing. Hours passed, and all you're doing is doing it. If you're a musician, I see Sharon nodding her head, I know that must be how you feel when you play. That's how it sounds. There's nobody in the way. There's just it. That, that's what we're seeking. That's what spirituality is. So that's why the om ring clean is a really good idea. Instead of worrying about your problem, concentrate on the mantra. Become the mantra. Mantra doesn't have a problem, right? <laughs> the mantra's not depressed, the mantra's not inadequate, the mantra just is the mantra. Concentrate on the mantra. The power of affirmations, which is a later chapter. just um, You just concentrate on those wonderful words. and And if that is your point of focus, that's you. The reason we can't do that, because of all the vrittis. We've got all the energy flowing that way, and then all these other habits come up and snatch our concentration away from us. Right? We'll just take it right back. You don't have to understand why it was snatched. You don't have to understand anything about those vrittis. You just have to escape from them. There's a certain point on the spiritual path where you realize it doesn't matter a damn who or what I am. The theory. This is, again, this is my my own particular way of saying this, which is not necessarily orthodox, but nor is it wrong, which is, I don't actually think you ever get any better. You just stop caring. (laughs) And when you stop caring, you become better. But if you ever stop, you could be just as messed up as you ever were. You know, you could be just as sad or just as confused or just as insecure. If you, if you, if you go bother to go back, you know, the little vortices are just still whirling around, but you just stepped out of the flow. You know, you've just chosen to become a person who's um, not like that anymore. And maybe they, maybe they actually go away. I mean, ultimately they do, but it's also just a matter of perspective, which is if this is the difficulties that you're having. And they may be very real. You know, maybe it's physical ill health, maybe you're mentally ill, maybe you're unhappy about a thousand things, but if your entire consciousness is only this big, then that becomes an extremely large percentage, doesn't it? So, but if instead of trying to just sort of hammer away at this, just try to keep figuring it out, which is really, next time you're in a mood, think about it,
1: right? Right?
0: You just get bigger, right? It never really goes away, but proportionally, it becomes so insignificant that it is as if it went away. Now, ultimately, with sufficient you know, energy, positive, you break up the actual seed thought and it goes away. And one of the ways you break up the seed thought is you have experiences that nullify this one. I am inadequate, I am afraid, nobody likes me, I am this kind of person. I actually had an argument with someone once, only once. I wished I'd had more like this, but um, when the context had to do with the early years at Ananda Village. When I first arrived at Ananda Village, I was very thin. Um, I had been on a very strict diet for years because I hadn't eaten sugar in about four years. I thought I was nearly self realized. Tommy talks in here you know about that physical preoccupation one of my early memories very early memories of Ananda village I came on June 1st of 1971 and this is right after that it, many of you know Seva she had a she got burned a gas motor blew up on her in her face that summer she was um, she's still beautiful has a beautiful face not a scar on her face it was a miracle but it was part of visiting her in town that's why I know I went into town with a group of people in Swami Kriyananda. We lived way out in the country and things were very much more primi- primitive out in Ananda village at that time. So, and also in town, but whenever we went to town we would go to Swenson's ice cream parlor. Swamiji has always had a great enthusiasm for good food and for sweets, but I was so strict. And we, and I know, so I, I don't know if Swami did this on purpose, but it felt like it did. There was this big table, maybe 12 people. Swamiji was at one end, and I was at the other. And everybody had an ice cream sundae, and I had a glass of water. (laughs) I mean, here I am in this ashram with this teacher that I admire so much, and he's taking us all out for ice cream sundaes. I'm drinking water. I had these little black frame glasses, and I had my hair in little braids. I weighed about 105. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but something, somehow, I didn't feel like I was quite on the right side of the question. <laughs> so I could just sense that there was something else happening here that I hadn't quite considered, because I was very much caught up into that. You know, all this focus on the physical body and all this thought that somehow I could just get my body pure enough. I don't know. It was just, it was just youth. It wasn't ill meant. It was just youth. But you know, gradually I got myself into the ice cream sundays then then came out the other side (laughs) but still um let's see there was another thought in that somewhere oh i can't quite recall but it was that intense preoccupation oh i know what i was going to intense preoccupation with working out my own problems and i and it just everything about me was like that it was very was very um like that. I was fundamentally a happy, energetic person, but still there was always this side of things. And uh, I remember saying to Swami once, we're so funny, if we have something that doesn't work, we just tend to try to do more of it. That, that just tends to be, we're, doing, we're following a course that's not working, a whole attitude toward life that's not working, but what we do is we try to do more of it. It's, it's very hard to realize that generally speaking the whole thing is wrong. I remember going to Swami and saying, because I could sense somehow that things weren't quite working the way I wanted them to. This was again very early on, and I said, "Sir, you know, it seems to me that I need to um, sharpen my powers of analysis." I don't know why I said such a thing, but that's what I said, <laughs> because I just needed to try harder. And, and I, my memory is that he was sitting in this armchair, and as soon as I said that, he sort of half rose from the chair and said, "No!" like that. <laughs> And then mastered himself. This is how I recall it. And sat down and he said, Develop devotion. You know, meaning you just, you, your poor little brain is so squoze already. Why don't you do something with some other part of your nature? Right? Because all of that energy, the primary reason why I was wrong, it's not that discrimination and intelligence is not useful, it's very useful. I was reading something that Swami said when he came to, to Master, Master immediately started, you know, because Swamiji he's about, says about himself that he was very over intellectual and was, you know, pushing in that same way. And Master p- pushed him toward devotion and had him, didn't even have him do intellectual work for a while, had him be, do carpentry and things like that. Swami just said he was hopelessly inadequate at it, but nonetheless it helped break that thought form that he had. Um, But uh, Let's see now Where was I going Oh he was saying It's not that his intelligence Was not useful or important It was just out of balance And and it just And and when I met Swamiji I'm off on a tangent here But it's an interesting one When I met Swamiji Because I am an intellectual type um, What I loved about him And still love to this day that he's so brilliant it's just so much fun I, I'm just always glad that he's so brilliant because it makes it so much more fun you know his books are brilliant his conversation is brilliant his teaching is brilliant in the ways that I, I consider that way insightful interesting well expressed because m- many great saints don't have that aspect to their nature they just don't have it it's not who they are but it was it was appropriate for this age and I used to puzzle as to why he was so smart because every situation we'd be in, he could just always figure it out. Oh, you know, people problem or business problem or something. He, just would, he was always able to come up with some kind of an answer, which is, has many explanations, not only the one I'm going to give now. And he could also just understand situations and people so well. And, and one day I finally understood that the power of his intelligence came from his heart. Because the, what what made my mind, and still does to this day, all of our minds, I'll sweep us all into this, we only know what we're willing to know. We only perceive to the extent that we're not afraid to perceive. Think how many stupid things we do in our lives just because it seemed like a good idea, but we just, we got so mixed up. But what Swami has, and ha- has always had, is enormous a personal courage, not courage so much in a physical sense. In fact, he jokes about the fact his older brother, he said, was very courageous physically. And Swamiji says there's a home movie, a child home movie, which he remarks to his everlasting dismay, which everybody in the family loves, which is Swami trying to jump off the high dive at about the age of six going up the ladder, out to the end, back down, up the ladder, out to the end, back down, and never actually ever jumping off. He just never had the nerve. And his brother, who was younger than him, just ran up, ran, jumped off, you know, just totally, physically, totally courageous like that. But what Swami has is enormous emotional and intellectual courage. And therefore, if it's true, he wants to know it. He doesn't care. If it's unflattering about him, that's fine. If it's going to be disappointing, that's no problem. Uh, if it's going to be a tough problem to fo- solve, who cares? If it's true, he wants to know it. Where where? so many of our minds are limited by what we have the courage to face. You know, we, we just, somebody will tell us something about ourselves that's absolutely true. But if we had to face that, oh, what would we do? It would be so devastating to our self-image. So we immediately have an explanation why they don't understand us. Just like Teflon, I love that expression now, like Teflon. There it comes. Somebody's sort of coming at you with an unpleasant truth and you just kind of go like that with it. Or circumstances, truth about someone that you're involved in, whatever it might be, Teflon. And that comes not from the mind. In fact, if the mind is very smart, it gets really, really, really good at doing that and never knows that the problem is the heart. And so the, the courage of the heart to know the truth is where the power of the mind comes from. And so that's where, and how do you have that kind of courage? You can't have it just by affirmation. The ego is very, very vulnerable. It's just very, very vulnerable. We think that we want all this, you know, really hard truth, but we don't. None of us enjoy it. It's just very, very unpleasant to be told that you're wrong or that you're ugly or whatever it is. It's just hard to hear it. But if we find ourselves centered in the power and the presence of God, then it's easier to take it. And so if we cultivate a sense of devotion, and the sense of devotion is chanting and meditation and so on, but above all, it's a sense of relationship. Whenever, um, whenever we teach meditation, there's always a point at which we try to explain that meditation is a relationship. You know, it's the deepest, most important relationship that you have. This prayer that we say every week, Father, Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved... Those are, those, are, uh, those are not titles of God. You know, sometimes we just say it, Father, Mother, Friend, God. And in, in some churches, I know they're, they're fond of praying, Father, Mother, God, like that. It's not, we're not describing, we're relating. You know, those are Mother, Father, Friend, Beloved. Because what we're describing is all the relationships that we want. And we're affirming that all those relationships come first with the Infinite and when you're in in the presence of a friend if you're in the presence of a loving mother if you're protected by a wise father it's much more much easier to be courageous isn't it i the the little children who come to sunday service there's a, a one little girl that i'm particularly fond of and i mean i like all of them but this little girl and i have a very nice bond and she used to be very open to me now she's become very shy and she's small enough and her father is large enough that she can actually stand between his legs and peek out between his legs. And she'll go all the way around behind him and then just sort of peek between his knees virtually out to see if I'm there. Just that, um, that gives her enough security to look like that. (laughs) And there's just something so um, attractive about that. I can remember as a child, my father was very sweet and uh, he's, he's sort of shrunken now, but he was a bigger man Of course, I was a smaller person, (laughs) but in fact, he has shrunk. (laughs) But he was a big man and he could carry us. And I I have such a a wonderful memory of uh, coming home from long car trips and being awake but pretending I was asleep because if I was asleep, my father would carry me in. I'm sure, and I'm sure he knew I wasn't really asleep. But just that feeling of um, that security. Now, God sends us those experiences. So that we will um, have a taste of what we're really looking for. As he says, they're symbolic. They're not meant to be literal and we spend all this time agonizing over what we did and didn't get from our mothers and did and didn't get from our fathers and do and don't get from our spouses and all of these things. But all of those are just symbolic. They're just meant to be like breadcrumbs on the trail saying, you think this love affair is impressive? You want a real love affair? You know, go to the infinite. And cultivating that continual sense of God's presence is what gives us strength and courage and positive magnetism and energy. If you've always got your mother around you and your father guiding you, you can do anything. Right? But if we're out there all by ourselves, well, it's a scary world, isn't it? I mean, it really is. It's a scary world. And most people just shrivel up by the end of it. Just, it's very hard to stay vibrantly alive till the end. Because this world doesn't work. One way or another, it begins to break, usually, toward the end. I feel very, very, very... who's well, to say whether it's good karma or not? Yeah, I was going to say, if you have very good karma, maybe it works well for you. But I don't know. Is that a good karma? There's one person that I know who's had a tremendous amount of suffering in his life and... Most of the people of his generation have gone on and made a success here and made a success there and done this and done that. He instead has become extremely serious on the spiritual path. Quite insignificant in terms of his profession and so on. Much less than we expected of him given his intelligence and so on. But I was actually thinking to myself, I wonder really who's doing a better thing with their life. Because of all the suffering and the failure that he's experienced He's become very deep as a devotee. Now this is brings me full circle to where I was, you know, where Swami was starting at the beginning. Concentrate on getting in tune with God. And really don't worry about anything else. I mean it may work out. I mean I and, and but don't think even, oh, I'll just get in tune with God, then everything will work out. It may. It may not. But what is working out? you know, what's working out is that your consciousness is where it's meant to be probably if you really are focused in the right way everything else will come easier to you that doesn't mean that we'll necessarily will have tangible success it just depends on your karma you know, it just depends on what's karma by that I mean what, what you're working out and what's good for you but your experience of life will certainly be a lot more fun, won't it? and then what's the difference? what defines it anyway are there any comments or thoughts pardon me in this context without actually dealing with what's written in the book I've been touching a lot about what Swami's talking about the right use of prayer which is it's really really interesting what he's written there and I find it interesting too that he's sort of including it at this point in the book Because one of the things that meditation gives you is this sense of understanding of the importance of prayer. Because meditation gives you a conscious experience of the fact that there is a a powerful, conscious, divine force waiting to relate to you. But uh, Stephanie almost introduced it by saying, don't use om Kling too trivially. Concentrate primarily on, on your right attitude towards your life. And pray above all for that. And then everything else will work. Although I find it very interesting, Swami says, after all that about not ever praying for himself, then he says, for someone who is still aware of himself as the ego, it's not so bad to pray for personal healing. And I think part of that is um, as, a, as an exercise of right, focusing right energy and uh, so on but it's an interesting question and worth contemplating the important point I I found when he put that in there is we need to be sincere back in the early days when there was a lot of drug-induced spirituality people were very pretentious and my my favorite was this woman who came who never used the pronoun I she would always speak of this unit of consciousness (laughs) she would speak of well this unit of consciousness is going to go to town this unit of consciousness is going into dinner you know, this unit of consciousness doesn't like green beans. And it was just so, the juxtaposition was so ludicrous. You know, it drew infinitely more attention to herself, to call herself a unit of consciousness, than to simply use the English pronouns. Whereas Anandamoy Ma, a great saint of India, never referred to herself with a personal pronoun, but it was no affectation for her. And she demonstrated it, which is if people didn't feed her, she didn't eat. She just had no, she had no personal relationship to the body she was in. And so it's, it's also important that if we are entirely detached, what Swami describes there is a freedom, he, he feels no need to call Divine Mother's attention to his situation because he's so detached from his own situation. Whereas if we are profoundly attached and anxious about our situation, and then don't pray to Divine Mother, don't ask Divine Mother's help, it's not, it's not in balance. Because if we have anxiety or fear or suffering about something, uh, we need to call God into that situation. You see what I mean? Swamiji's willingness not to ask Divine Mother's help is based on the fact that it's of no consequence to him what happens. But if it's of consequence to you and you're anxious about it, involve Divine Mother in it. Do you understand the difference? It's very, very important. But if you are free and can really just say whatever you want, as long as it's sincere. And sometimes what you have to pray for is you don't necessarily pray to solve this problem. You pray to become detached from whether it's solved or not. In other words, you don't necessarily pray for things. You pray for right consciousness. And the prayer for right consciousness is the one that Divine Mother likes the most. And if you have right consciousness, what difference does it make? You have, if you trace everything back, you think that this is your problem. But this external thing is only your problem because you have a certain consciousness about it. And sometimes you just have to say, maybe somebody else could be detached from this, but not me. <laughs> and, and just straight up, the more just straight you are in your prayers and in your inner relationship, the more God can help you. Think of it, the divine relationship is just an extension of any relationship you have. I do a lot of counseling, and um, I can only work with what people bring me. You know, If someone comes to me and only tells me that this is the problem, I can't force them to tell me that something else is the problem, even if I may actually know that it is. I can only work with what they offer me. Do you understand? And if you say to Divine Mother, everything is just fine. I'm really just okay with this. You know, it doesn't make any difference to me. I'm so detached. It doesn't matter, <laughs> you know? because that's how I'm supposed to feel. Uh, there's no, there's no receptivity. That's the part where there has to be enough humility, humility, and self-honesty—real self-honesty—that says, "I'm not this good. I can't deal with this. I'm in a mess." And, and just that as Swami says you know we, we shouldn't necessarily tell our faults to other people if they're not wise enough to deal with them maturely but from God you must have no secrets and you would think well why would I have secrets from God well because we keep secrets from ourselves and if you have to admit it in prayer you're admitting it and sometimes we are cloudy in our mind because we're afraid in our hearts remember so just be very real just right where you are whatever that might be because then that that opens up the channel that 's your part of the effort is to have the courage to admit it that this is what i 'm actually working on. I remember years ago what well, 's not so long ago because it 's been a it 's a long fight, but years ago it reached a dramatic moment. <clears throat> I was working for Swamiji and I was very incompetent. I actually fizzled out at every job I ever had until I got here, really. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, it wasn't that I did no good work, but I, I never just never knew how to pull things together, and I still struggle. I'm, I'm just good with my mouth. So we made a profession out of my mouth, and then things started working better. But uh, Swamiji was uh, wanting me to do, do certain projects and so on, and I, I wanted to be very willing. I knew that's how you were supposed to be. So I would just be very positive, but totally ineffectual. And uh, I had that peculiarity of incompetent people, which is um, incompetent people never ask for help. That's why they stay incompetent. Competent people are often very comfortable asking for help. I learned that from David. David was very competent and completely open about getting help from everyone. I was totally incompetent, needed help in all directions, but never had the nerve to ask for it. And the paradox of that finally got through to me. And I, I began to just see sort of what a joke that was. But in the very early period of that, I just felt like, you know, you had to just say yes. And the more I said yes and didn't produce anything, the more Swami piled projects on top. You know Until I was going nuts, basically. And, uh, and I was also very upset because of what was happening. I was getting mad at him. And Swamiji finally said something. This was like, this went on for about two years. This was not a short lesson. He said, uh, You put out a positive attitude because, you know, that's how you want to be perceived. But you're not fooling me. And I'm very practical. And I thought, Well, what a stupid waste of energy then. You know? <laughs> I didn't even get away with it. I mean, who do... and then you have to think to yourself, How stupid do you think this man is? I mean, anybody who puts on a false front. You always know it. How are you today? Well, I'm just fine. Well, that doesn't bother me at all. I'm not mad about that at all.
1: (laughs) You know, do you
0: think we ought to talk? Why should we talk? I'm fine. And you can't because the person's not going to let you. But it's just, you know, it's written all over the face. It's just as big as the house. It's the elephant under the rug. And And so when Swami said that to me, I just realized, well, what is the point? I wasn't fooling him, I was just wearing myself out. And I became quite shocking to many people because I became quite sort of flippant about things. And and when I didn't agree with Swamiji, we would argue, which was just like unbelievable. I mean, argue in the sense that I would protest. And and he he was perfect because that was just what was needed. Um, That was a point that I wanted to make. But with Divine Mother, you think you can fool God? You think you can pray for this when this is really what you need? You think you can say this is your attitude and this is really your attitude? Oh, come on, let's get real. But it takes a lot of courage because then you have to admit, I really am mad about this. This is really petty and stupid and I'm really peeved about it. Right? This really is indicative of a very small consciousness and I guess that's my consciousness. (laughs) That You know, that's it's very hard to do. Even alone in your meditation room to just really admit what our consciousness is like. But if we do, then God will help us. If we don't, we just get to keep it. That's what, uh, in in a recent situation, I was talking to Swamiji about someone who needed help. And this was, because a voice tries to guess. It wasn't that recent, I say recent, but it was several years ago. And it's saying, you know, so-and-so's really struggling, Swamiji. Would you pray for that person? And Swami said, well, yes. And he seemed very reluctant, Swami did. And I thought, well, why is he so reluctant? And then Swami added, he said, well, he said it's their blessings that are lacking. And he was referring to this story of, of Masters where, um, uh, it's told of a disciple who Master was exhorting that disciple to do something. And the disciple, this is a, a, uh, the disciple said, oh, Master, you know I can't do it without your grace. And uh, that sounds like a very positive answer, but Master's answer was, he said, God's blessings are there. My blessings are there. It's your blessings that are lacking. Which is to say, you haven't really given your energy with honest commitment to overcoming this. And, and, and I was saying to some people last night, I've had a few experiences in my life, one of them exceedingly dramatic, when I finally realized that something I'd been trying to overcome, I thought, for some 20 years, it's not a long, it's not a short time in an incarnation. I really enjoyed having it. You know, I liked being just a little nasty and angry about it. You know, we, it, we have, you have to just sometimes, when I finally really admitted that what was really going on was that I liked being nasty and angry about it. <clears throat> and then when I saw that, when I really saw that, I really didn't want to be that way anymore. And on that day it ended, 20 years. That's not, it's not a short thing, but I finally saw I finally prayed, instead of take this away from me, Lord, I said, Lord, help me to want this to go away. And as soon as I prayed that, it went away. And it was stunning to me. It hasn't always worked that quickly, unless you get your hopes up. But it did work that time. But 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 I also see that, and I recognize that if something doesn't go away, if something persists, you're still getting it. it still works for you, as they say in the sort of modern vernacular. It's, it's working for you. Uh, just a a, a friend who was trying to help me work out a problem a few years ago she just said I was describing to her what I thought was such a bummer in my life and she she just flipped it and she said well what are you getting out of it how is it serving you it was such a good question because as soon as she said that I stood back a little bit and I saw how it served me very well actually you know holding on that delusion actually served my life in, in ways having to do with courage of the heart As long as I had that delusion, you see, I need to stop and take a break. As long as you have this delusion that you can't solve, you try so hard to solve it. You're just busy all the time trying to solve it, right? Oh, I'm trying so hard. Oh, Lord, if you'd just help me. And you don't really have to do anything else. You're just real busy, right? But if you actually don't have that problem, then you might have to go on to the next stage of your life which certainly, in my own little world, with my cowardly little heart, is, is really a big story. So I love, I love the ones that just keep me going in circles. Because if I ever get out of there, then I have to leave, you know, I have to go into the next one. That, but that was her question to me. I don't say it's your reality. How is it serving you? And I realized, oh my God, it serves me perfectly. Because without this, I'd have to go in a direction that I'm really afraid to go. And so the, the, the whole prayer shifted from, help me to overcome this, would be help me not to be afraid of what will come next. And as soon as I'm not afraid of what will come next, it goes away. Courage of the heart. All right, let's take a break. Ten minutes. <clears throat> yes. Um, prior to this time, he's always written it like this. So I presume the sound is somewhere in between, uh, Dharma. Just for everyone's sake, would you like to pronounce that mantra, yeah. the way it's really pronounced?
1: I, I Do you know how to pronounce it? Yeah, but it's, it depends. There are several different variations of that. So. Ah! <laughs> this is when you ask a
0: scholar, you get too good an answer. If
1: you want to hear the one I think when I read it. The one I think he was trying to say. Okay. It's om ring ring. That's the way it normally goes. It says ring and then uh, our clean, I think is the way the one used uh, their like they variation
0: of uh-huh. that. Krishnaya Nama. Oh dear. Okay. <laughs> better just stick with my way. Do it a few times, Darwin. No, do it a few times the way you would do it.
1: Um Kring, Kring, Krishna
0: Nama. Well that sounds the same way. That just sounds like a better version of what we've been doing.
1: It's just what people tend to do. This sounds like a really minor thing, but it's a big deal with Sanskrit people go thing, cling, cling. They, they make the eing part, and it's uh-huh. a very, it's a completely different vowel and it has a very different vibration
0: uh-huh. to
1: it. If you Ng. cling, to me, I can't quite do it, like, uh-huh. uh, the Americans are clean, like that. It's uh-huh. very different than cling or thing.
0: Yeah. Oh. yeah, ring, that was, that was the sound. Same, same vowel. In yeah.
1: Krishna. People
0: go like this. They go Krishna. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Different
1: well, like
0: <laughs> Dharma taught Sanskrit.
1: <laughs>
0: this man knows knows the subject. <laughs> that was very good. Yeah, I was too. I, I couldn't quite stop in the middle of my doing it for fear that it would no no because I knew it wouldn't be a simple. I knew if I asked you, it wouldn't be just a simple term. Right, I knew. No, I knew. I know. I, I wanted to ask you eventually, but not right at that moment. But but don't paralyze yourself. Let me say something about it. If you pronounce it with sincerity, God will hear it correctly.
1: <laughs> the most important thing about Sanskrit people usually miss, that was stinking on the front. You should, just like meditation, you should enjoy it. If you're not enjoying it, you're doing something wrong. Yeah.
0: And don't worry about it. It's yeah. not... Devotion gives it the power. Sincerity of faith gives it the power. Swamiji always would talk about um, Master's most advanced male disciple was a man named uh, James J. Lynn, who was Amer- an American from Oklahoma, from the Midwest. And uh, he became fully self-realized. He was the first president of SRF after Master died. Master gave his mantle of spiritual power to James J. Lynn. who He named him Rajasi Janakananda. Uh, but, but he was not, he was from Oklahoma. He was not a, a world traveler. Pardon me, Kansas. Well, he, I think he came from Oklahoma. I think he started in Oklahoma. But he lived in Kansas. And, uh, anyway, when I say Oklahoma, it gives you a type. And I don't mean to be rude because Swami's parents were from Oklahoma. But, but still. But Swami said that mass, that he would play, Rajasi would pray Sri Yukteswar. Sri Yukteswar is the Yogananda's guru. Rajasi would say, Seer Root Tetraji. (laughs) He would lead the prayers. He was the president of SRF. He would pray to Seer Root Tetraji, (laughs) right, instead of Swami Sri Yukteswar. But as Swami said, when he meditated, he saw him. It really didn't make any difference (laughs) what he called him. (laughs) So whenever we all become too, you know, preoccupied thinking that God cares. Mommy always mentions that, so we just kind of can relax about these things. At the same time, it doesn't hurt to put out a little bit of energy to try to understand what you're doing and do it as well as you can, and then just leave it. I had a friend from the East Coast who always calls me Asher. People would say, why don't you tell him what your name is? I said, he knows. That's how he, that's how he thinks it's pronounced. If he's going to call me Asher. It's not, no amount of help is
1: going
0: to do it. So... I always thought of that. That doesn't make any difference. Okay. Um, The one thing in this chapter that I... Excuse me, are there any questions or comments? Because we don't have too much more time. Yes, Eric?
1: You talked a lot about, at the the end there, about um, trying to go in with him and asking God help on things. Right. And a lot of that, a large portion of that seemed to... um, the contrast to the, the, the place in the middle
0: was I was saying you have to be realistic and we, what you should pray for see what you should pray for is to have the right attitude to ask for right attitude let me let me phrase it like this um, let's see how does one put this If you're praying for something that will overcome your ego, it's not egotistical to pray for it. Do you see? What, what the opposite of self-forgetfulness is egoic self-preoccupation, preoccupation with the little self and its separate reality from the from the universe. That's the opposite of self-forgetfulness. Devotion in which you're asking to be closer to God, to be freer in your heart, to overcome your delusions, is the antithesis of ego. And so that kind of prayer—if you're praying, make me rich, make me powerful, make me strong, make me a cheerleader, make me a valedictorian—you know, whatever it might be—just um, m- make me all these things. Then that's the kind of self-preoccupation that isn't good. But but to be, be concentrating on your relationship with God is the death of the ego, and therefore it leads to ultimate self-forgetfulness. The story I was remembering was when uh, Swami Kriyananda would was visiting with Anandamayi Ma in India years ago and they had a very sweet relationship Anandamayi Ma is the woman saint written up in Autobiography of a Yogi Joy Permeated Mother that's the chapter she died in the early 80s and in the um, 50s 60s late 50s and early 60s when Swamiji was in India he spent a lot of time with her and then when he went back in the 70s he also saw her but he just loved being with her and he said uh, and she, was, she gave him a great deal of attention. and There was something about him taking up too much of her time. And he said, well, I don't want to be selfish by taking too much of your time. And she said, that which dissolves the ego cannot be selfish. So the desire to be with her was the desire to overcome the ego, and that wasn't a selfish desire. So if your prayer is a prayer to overcome all selfishness, it, it leads to self-forgetfulness. Uh, it's a fine line, and so you yourself have to watch. That's where this whole chapter started. You have to see what the actual fruit of your spiritual life is like. It, it, it comes out in the if if your as he says, if your intuition just causes chaos and confusion for everyone, then it probably you can't probably say for certain that it's true intuition. And if your so-called spiritual practices just make you woolly and ineffective and you can't function anymore then you have to at least ask that question if you've transcended functioning and Brother Lawrence in the practice of the presence of God was so full of God remembrance that he couldn't even wash dishes because he would forget he was holding them and he would drop them but generally speaking you'll know you'll be able to tell (laughs) and very often we, we think that we're ineffective because we're so spiritual but usually it's not true (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Ask a few people. Take, a, take an informal poll. Do you think I'm just incompetent or too saintly for this job? See what people say. <laughs> Ask three different people. <laughs> See what happens. Detachment is the key, and and the main thing is to be utterly sincere. Don't say, "Oh, a very more advanced person wouldn't pray for this. I won't pray for this." Do you see what I mean? Don't impo- don't impose an attitude upon yourself because you read somewhere that that's what a more advanced person would do. It's written. It's very. It's a very serious problem, and people do it all the time. And then you become extremely divided from yourself. And you burst into tears and you don't know why because you've just gotten yourself so mixed up. You know, you just need to, you need to be exactly who you are. You're not fooling anybody. I mean, if you if you can't fool your neighbors. Believe me, you can't fool Divine Mother. But she won't interfere because your blessings are required. You have to be, you have to put yourself effort into it. So you need to be very, very sincere. And if you don't know what to pray for, ask, pray to be told what to pray for. Just, just imagine that you have a very good teacher and you're not afraid of that teacher. Somebody who really knows how to do what you want to do and will teach you, but you have to get engaged with them. You know, Watch people who are, who are not afraid to admit that they don't know things and watch how they behave and model yourself after that inwardly. Do you know what I mean? When you see somebody who's just not afraid to learn, it's, a, it's very different because so many of us are afraid to expose our weaknesses, and therefore we never overcome them. Such idiocy. But that's the complexity of the ego. So that that's what you're really working with. Yeah?
1: I love this um, sentence in here. It comes after he's talking about giving our faults to God. He mm-hmm. uh, says, uh, by working on ourselves from the superconscious level, we find that it becomes actually a blessing to discover faults in ourselves. Each one gives us the joyful opportunity to offer something more to God. He can yeah. purify us as no amount of psychological counseling, self-analysis every will. It's very comforting to know that it's a blessing when we find out something wrong with us, We have to keep remembering
0: that. I remember, I remember Swamiji so sweetly once said, "God is pleased when you lay at His feet your successes, but He's more pleased when you lay your failures." And the reason is very simple, is that we're more attached to our failures, generally speaking. When thin- things succeed, there may be a desire to have a fat head about it, but, but you're not ashamed. You know, there's no shame in success. You succeed and you're very happy to give God the credit. When you fail, there's all this embarrassment and shame, and then overcoming that, and being willing to open yourself to God at that point, is a, is a far greater victory. So it, it, if you think of it like that, oh, one more, one more fault. It's, it's a complicated story, you know, this process. That's why you have to just simple it down. Oh ring, cling. <laughs> just keep changing your inner vibration. Change your inner vibration over and over. You change your outer magnetism. You change your destiny. You know, this whole world is just, it's the ch- chapter on magnetism, it's all just a result. This is how karma works. Those little vortices of energy, each of them radiate at a certain level. They send out a certain signal. And that signal is like you're, you're a walking receiving station at that point. And you are the sum total of all the vortices in your chakras at any, any moment. And you're just pulsing. And, and all the magnetic forces in the world that are in tune with you will be drawn to you. And they'll be drawn to you, and they'll, they'll come into you to the extent to which you match. You know that's how the murderer finds the victim. That's how the purse snatcher finds the purse, and and somebody else walks by. That's how you get drawn into the airplane that crashes. That's how your true love finds you on a street corner in you know in the bazaar of Morocco, and you're both from uh, Minneapolis, and you find yourself over there because there was just this radiating, pulsing karma that just causes it to happen. You change. The magnetism in your spine, you change the force that you're putting out, everything is different. This universe is only energy. The same thing again, you have to say to yourself over and over again, it's only energy. If you don't like what's coming to you, change your vibration and you will change everything. I mean, many times in my life over these, you know, so many years, I've just found myself someplace I did not want to be internally, or in my relationships with people, or in my relationships with myself, just someplace I didn't want to be. And and it has such a sense of independent reality, and in a sense it does because there's momentum. If you're in a car that's going a hundred miles an hour, and you decide that maybe you don't want to keep going hundred miles an hour. There's a little bit of space between the time you make that decision and the time that you can actually apply the force, slow the car down, bring it to the side of the road and get out. But from the time that you decide to do that, if you just put forward the right energy, it will stop. I often say to people who are learning to meditate and the mind is running like a wild animal, like a wild horse. I use the image if you are on the back of a wild horse and that horse has the bit in his teeth and is running away from you. The first time you say, Whoa, horsey, the horse is not really going to respond. <laughs> so you have to, but, but if you persist in your effort to gain mastery, eventually you will gain mastery. And that mastery will be b- built on that first little impulse. Whoa, horsey. And the fact that it doesn't work and you keep trying. And so with us, at any moment in time, you are nothing but the sum total of those vortexes in your spine, those vortices in your spine, that's all you are. Start changing your inner magnetism and eventually everything will be different. Now whether it changes tomorrow, the next day, a week, in a minute, depends on the momentum that you've built up and the concentration and determination that you put out now. But many times when I found myself way off-center, you know, just way, way, way somewhere that I really didn't want to be. And you just have this feeling that I'll never get out. Then you just realize that you just have to walk back. It's just as simple as that. You just walk back. And it, it may just be that in the next moment you put out a better attitude. In the next moment, you put in the moment after that you put out a better attitude. And this brings us, and I'll spend just a few minutes on this. I don't want to spend too long. On the three gunas, tamas, Rajas, and Sattva Guna. There's a few concepts that are so helpful. And Swamiji, and I don't have to, you know, it's in the book, but he talks about how, how energy, all, there's always a polarity. There's always a north and a south pole. No matter how you cut it, if you take a magnet, he didn't exactly say that in here, but if you cut, cut it over and over and over again, there's still going to be a north-south. Now, how that relates to human activity is like this. In every situation, wherever you are, there's always, you're always going to have an upward and a downward choice. And it may not be even be very dramatic, but you'll always, you can always go a little more up or a little more down. You can always put out a little more better energy or a little less worse energy. Always. And if you just do nothing else in your life, but every time you're faced with that choice, you put out a little more better energy instead of a little less, worse energy. you know what I mean? If you're a, um, I, I, this is an example, if you want to eat the whole box of chocolates, and you just really want to eat the whole box of chocolates, before you eat the whole box of chocolate, take one and throw it down the garbage disposal. Right? <laughs> and then, you know, it's not a very high choice that you're making, but you made a slightly higher choice than the one that you could have made, because there's always a polarity and if you're if you're going to bed without doing the dishes and you know that you really ought to wash the dishes and there's just one really scuzzy plate and you scrape it off before you go to bed you've gone just a little higher than the lowest if you just consistently always go a little higher you'll find that just that thought form of just orienting yourself what can i do that's real for me because it, it also it's so marvelous because you can always then measure yourself just against yourself you're not in any competition with anyone it's that okay given who i am and the choices that i have i'm just going to stand on the slightly upward edge of the little spectrum in which i'm in and if you keep doing that the, the success on the spiritual path is built of minutes it's built of a, of a million tiny choices and if you just get in the habit and see it all builds together too the willingness the energy that we talked about last week if you don't have massive positive energy, then have just a little bit of positive energy. Even if, I sometimes tell the story of being very upset with David in a, a, a public place once. This was many years ago, and I, was, I got mad about something. And I never, I never stopped needing to be angry at him, and just sort of confront and have this little bit of a scene. But I kept choosing the sattvic, the best part of my bad energy, Right? Until by the time I finally had to do it, really it was not much of a problem. But I I did it piece by piece, just like moment by moment. Shall Shall I scream here in the store? No, let me get to the sidewalk. Okay, now we're on the sidewalk. Should I sort of start an argument now? No, I think I can make it to the car. Okay, I'm all the way to the car. Let's see if I can get to the apartment. And just, you know, piece by piece, just kept choosing within the band where I was. At no time in there was I able to just give up the whole issue. Me. That was just like too big for me. It was like in the context of being upset. Let me be not as terrible as I could be. But, but that's actually massive. And, and that's partly what this always is about. And also to Rick, one last point about this is, um, you know, the tamasic energy is just dull and inert. And rajasic energy is simply active. And sattvic energy, uh, is uplifting.